0: Well, good morning, everyone. Um, My name is Juni and I have the wonderful privilege of bringing you God's word today. I am one of the many pastoral interns here at Cornerstone. Um, If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Numbers chapter 21, verses four to nine. If you are new or visiting with us this morning, we are continuing on in a series titled Five on Five, where we are looking at five lessons in the first five books of the Bible. We are currently on our third week and our third lesson in the book of Numbers. And our message today is entitled, A Lesson in Mere Faith. And so at this time, if you're able, would you stand with me? We stand as an act of reverence as we read and receive God's word as an act of our worship. Numbers 21, beginning from verse four. Hear now God's word. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. And would you pray with me once more? Father, this morning, we pray for listening ears. We pray for open hearts as we spend these next few moments in your word. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you illumine the words and may they not just be knowledge in our heads, but may they lead to ultimate transformation in our lives. Jesus, would you be all speak to us, oh Lord, we, your people are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Two weeks ago, um, I think it was a little more than two weeks ago, but on July 4th, um, the town that I live in, good old Glenside, Pennsylvania, had a parade to celebrate 4th um, of July. The parade is a huge spectacle where um, it cuts across the main street of the entire town. It's a grand event where everyone gathers along the streets and to celebrate America. And I typically enjoy these types of events, except there was one thing this year. My apartment building just happened to be smack dab in the middle of the main road, right where the parade was going down. It was right along the parade route. And it so happens that, that day, I chose to leave my house and come back right at 4 p.m., right as the parade was starting. And so, right as I drove into town, as I saw all the orange signs saying, detour, go this way, roads closed, the realization hit me that every single road leading up to my apartment, leading up to the main street was closed off. And so a drive that would have taken five minutes on any other day took a whole 30 minutes as I stopped and I looped around and around my entire neighborhood looking for an open street looking for a way back to the promised land that is my apartment complex's parking lot. And so this is the same situation that we see that we find the Israelites in our passage today. We read in verse four, from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. If you've been, with, if you've been here with us for the past few weeks, you'll remember that the book of Numbers details Israel, Israel's journey out of Egypt and into the promised land. It accounts the time that they spent in the wilderness. And at this point in the book of Numbers, Israel, Israel has been wandering in the desert for for decades now, and they're just about ready to be done with the journey, but you see God does something here. God doesn't send them directly into the promised land. He doesn't take them on the shortest or the easiest road into the promised land. In fact, God sends them on probably one of the hardest paths that they could take. He sends them back towards the Red Sea. And if you're familiar with Exodus, if, you're familiar, if you've watched Prince of Egypt, even, you know that the Red Sea was where they crossed over in order to exit out of Egypt and into the promised land, or into the desert to go to the promised land. And so essentially, God sends them back the way that they came and makes them continue to wander in the desert. And so God was in essence, backtracking Israel through the most desolate, dry and dangerous parts of the Sinai desert and in the minds of the people, they were taking two steps forward and three steps back. And so imagine what's going on through the minds of these people as they pass by familiar landmarks, as they pass by old footprints in the sand that they had just seen a couple years ago. And as they head back towards the Red Sea, the very place where they had begun their journey. And so you can imagine a great discouragement spreads across the Israelite camp. And this discouragement leads to impatience, their impatience to crankiness, and their crankiness to downright rebellion against God. And in their rebellion, in the sin of the people, we see the great consequences that come for them. And we see Israelites great and ultimate need for rescue and saving from death and from the wrath and judgment of God. But even in such a story of God's judgment and wrath, we still find a beautiful picture of the gospel. We can find the beauty of a God who is merciful, of a God who is gracious, and of a God who is abounding in steadfast love. And so here is our main gospel truth, our main point of meditation for this morning. We have all been affected by the poison of sin, but in faith, we can look to Jesus, who is the ultimate antidote. We have all been affected by the great poison of sin, but in faith, we look to Christ, who is the ultimate antidote. And so we'll see how this truth plays out in three, passage, in three headings. The poison of sin, the consequence of sin, and finally, the antidote or cure for sin. The poison of sin, the consequence of sin, and finally, the cure or antidote for sin. First, we see the poison of sin. We read in verses 4 and 5 of our text, And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses saying, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. You see, up to this point, God has blessed the Israelites throughout their journey to the promised land. We saw last week that God graciously provided them with water. We see that God provides them with with food and a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to guide his people through the wilderness. All that the people have needed, God has faithfully provided for them. But you see the Israelites in their great discouragement and hopelessness begin once again to grumble and complain. They are led to rebel against God. They question God's holiness in leading them all of these years throughout the wilderness and the desert. They begin to question and grumble against God and against his servant Moses. Manna again, the Israelites ask. We loathe this worthless food. Manna again for the 40th year in a row. And you might be wondering, was that really that bad? Is grumbling and complaining about the same food that they've been eating for the past 40 years, is it that bad? Was it bad that after eating manna for nearly 40 years, they were craving a nice ribeye steak? you see the grumbling, the rebelling of the Israelites points to a much deeper issue of the heart, one that still poisons all of our hearts. Imagine with me for a second that you spend a great deal of time to prepare a special meal for a significant other, or maybe your close friend, maybe your husband or wife. For hours and hours, you sit behind the heat of a fire, sweating, toiling away, to prepare a grand meal for the, one, for the one that you love, simply out of love that you have towards this person. And then imagine you lay it out in front of them. Maybe you lay down the tablecloth, turn the candle on, and they show absolute disgust at the food. They say, can we just go get McDonald's instead? And so they completely reject the food that you have labored tirelessly over. You see, this rejection would not simply be a rejection of the food, but rather it would also be a rejection of you, the one who has provided the food for them. It would be a rejection of your love for them. In the same way, the Israelites' complaints against and rejection of the provision of God was not merely a rejection of the food that God graciously provided for them, but it ultimately reflected a deeper heart issue. You see the rejection of the provision reflected a rejection of the provider. They were saying that God did not know how to take care of them. They felt that they knew what they needed better than what God himself did. Was God really in charge of our lives? Did he even care about our difficulties? So there was a deep sense of disappointment ingrained into the heart of the Israelites because they were wholly dissatisfied. And you see, this deep-rooted heart issue is not something that we observe from far away. It's not some far-removed thing that we look at and we observe as outsiders. Because you see, you are affected by the very same poison that affected the Israelites. The very same poison that was in the heart of the Israelites. This is a picture of your very own soul. Because just as the Israelites, deep in their hearts, had a sense of dissatisfaction, so do we as well deep inside the poison of sin courses through you and you cannot get away from it because ultimately sin stems from the heart and sin stems from a heart of dissatisfaction. It comes from a place of trying to take matters into your own hands and out of God's sovereign control. And think about it, this is why we're always looking and working hard to try to find some kind of sense of worth in the world. Maybe you find your worth in your career or in your job title. Maybe it's in what college you get accepted into, or even what college your kids get accepted into. Maybe it's in your status, your pedigree, how, how the people around you view you. Maybe it's in your income. Maybe it's in your relationships, who you know. And where does this come from? Where does this heart of deep dissatisfaction come from? You see, if we go all the way back to the beginning, we see another story of a serpent. In Genesis, we see another story of a snake. And what does this snake do? He tempts us of this thirst. The serpent tells Eve in Genesis 3:1, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God really say, did God really say not to touch that? You see, he says to them, forget about what God has given you. Forget about what you have. If you listen to what I'm telling you, you yourself can be like God. In fact, you can take his place. You can take control of your own lives again. And this control is the greatest temptation. For Adam and Eve, being in the garden, being in the very presence of God himself was not enough. And so ever since then, ever since the entrance of sin into the world, we have all been tainted by this very same thing. We have all been poisoned by the deep dissatisfaction of our hearts and our desire to control our lives. And because we tried to control our lives, we lost control. Because we tried to become more of ourselves, we became less of ourselves. We've been removed from the presence of God and are constantly thirsting and craving for answers for some satisfaction of our desires. Because there's a God-sized hole in our hearts and in our souls. And the poison of sin courses through us all. The Israelites were affected by it, and we too have been tainted by it. And this sin, this poison, does not come without consequence. There's an eventual outcome for all who have sinned against God. And we see this in our second point, the consequence of sin. The consequence of sin. Look with me in verse six, it says, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. God sees the sin of the Israelites, the grumbling of the Israelites and God ultimately delivers judgment against them for their unfaithfulness and for their sin. The Israelites had to pay a penalty for defying God's commandments to obey him. And so God sends fiery serpents to bring judgment upon the people of Israel. The people have rejected a blessing from heaven, and so they receive a curse from the desert. They were offered nourishment and life in the form of bread from heaven, but they rejected it and instead received disease and death from snakes. God sends punishment for the great sin of the people. The people of Israel reject his grace and his provision. And so they must face God's judgment and his wrath. And again, you might be wondering, how does that make sense? Shouldn't the punishment at least be proportionate to the wrong committed? Yes, we said that they do deserve punishment, but shouldn't the punishment at least be proportionate to the wrong committed? All that the Israelites did was complain about some food. How was the punishment of death fair compared to the wrong committed. It's like receiving the death penalty for speeding. But you see, the thing is, as we looked at earlier, the grumbling of the Israelites reflected a much deeper, a deep rooted sinfulness of their hearts. It reflected their lack of faith in a sovereign God and it reflected their desires to take matters into their own hands. You see, their actions were not just sinful actions from an otherwise good people. Rather, it was a sinful action from a sinful people because their actions simply reflected their sinful hearts. And so the consequence that the people receive, the consequence that the people face is indeed exactly what is deserving of a people who are unholy and unfaithful to a holy and faithful God. All who have been tainted by the poison of sin and all who have fallen short of the glory of God, all who have been unholy against, an, against the holy God deserve death and deserve ultimate judgment. Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death. The consequence of sin is ultimately death. And these fiery serpents that we see in our passage are the perfect picture of this consequence. The fiery snakes were actually not called fiery snakes because they were literally on fire. You'll see, if you see some pictures of this image depictions of this, of of this event, you'll see that the snakes are literally on fire, but the fiery snakes were actually called that because the venom of the snakes would feel like fire in the blood of those that the snakes bit and they would surely without a doubt, die an excruciating death. The venom that ended up in the bloodstream of the people and ended up killing them gives us an image of the deadliness of the poison of sin in our lives. Because once the people were bitten, their doom was certain. It was just a matter of time until they would die. And so the consequence indeed is fit for the wrongdoing. And in the same way, everyone who has been bitten by the poison of sin is deserving of death. And that means you too, who have been bitten by the poison of sin, deserve the fiery death that the Israelites experienced. You deserve the same judgment that God casted upon Israel. And again, you might be thinking, my sins aren't that much though. They aren't as bad when you compare it to that person or this person. How about the one who murdered someone? How about the one who committed adultery and cheated on his wife or husband? Those guys, those people, their sins are much. Mine are not that great. And compared to them, I am little and my sins are little. But you see, just like the Israelites, our sins stem from a much deeper place. It stems from a deep dissatisfaction of our hearts, from a heart of sin. And that deeply rooted heart of sin, no matter how small the actual sin may be, is deserving of judgment from a holy God. And if the story in Numbers were to end there, there would be no hope. We would all be condemned to death as sinners. And the Israelites, there would be no Israel, they would have all died. But praise God that the story does not end there. Praise God that God himself would provide for the Israelites a cure, an antidote for the poison and the venom of the fiery snakes. And so we see this in our third point, the cure, the antidote for sin. You see, the Israelites confess to Moses for their sins and say, Moses, please intercede on our behalf. And Moses does does so. And God, in his mercy, relents and provides a great rescue for his people. We read in verse 8 and 9, And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. In the depths of their sin, the people cry out to God and God in his great faithfulness and love to his people pours out an overflow of mercy. Yes, God delivered rightful and deserved judgment against the people who had sinned against him. But then he delivered mercy. This wasn't some sort of backpedaling or changing his mind or or God being fickle. He wasn't being wishy-washy. Rather, it was actually God's divine nature on full display. Because he is holy, he must deal with the sin of the Israelites. But because he is love, but because God is love, he chooses to offer mercy for his people. And this great mercy comes in the form of a bronze serpent that God commands Moses to build and set on a pole. There was no human cure or human remedy for the bite of the fiery serpents, but there was indeed hope for the people, for God himself provided the cure, the antidote for the venom of the fiery snake. And once the bronze serpent was set upon the pole, everyone who looked at the bronze serpent would live and would be cured the venom of the snake would no longer affect them. And notice that God doesn't simply just remove them, just remove the the snakes from the camp. If I was the Israelites, I would have surely asked that. I would have said, God, just get rid of them. How easy of a solution? How much easier of a solution is that? If you just got rid of them, they would no longer bother us. But you see, that's not the solution that God provides for them. The fiery snakes were still there. There's no mention of the fiery snakes disappearing or going away. The consequences of sin, the the consequences of the sin of the Israelites still remained with them. They were still bitten and they still felt the fiery poison of the serpent. But what God did provide for them, what God did provide for them was ultimate salvation from death. He allowed the Israelites who trusted and put their faith in him to avoid perishing as a result of their sin. And all that it it took, all that it would take to be saved was to look. Anyone who simply looked at the bronze serpent would would live and would be saved. And the interesting thing to note here, there's two interesting things things to note is one is that God commands Moses to make a serpent that is made out of bronze and in the old Testament, bronze often symbolizes the wrath of God. Additionally, serpents are also used to represent sin, temptation, and evil. I mean, even think about the Genesis account that we just looked at the beginning of all evil, the beginning of all sin came from a serpent. And even just a few moments ago, God used serpents to cast judgment on his people. And so it's a touch ironic that the instrument that God uses to save the people is not some kind of medicine, is not some kind of bomb to rub on their wounds, but rather God uses the very thing that he used to judge the people in order to save the people. The very object that would cure them of the curse was shaped into the very likeness of the very thing that wounded them. So imagine the horror that the Israelites felt. And imagine what they thought when they heard this. When they heard that instead of having a great medicine or some kind of heal all medicine cure for their burns, instead they would need to look upon a prawn serpent the very image of the thing that was killing people left and right. I mean, just imagine with me for a second. Imagine you got bit by a mosquito, you're covered in mosquito bites, and someone, instead of giving you medicine or itch cream or tiger bomb or whatever it might be, they say, here, look at a statue of a mosquito, and all of your itches will go away, and, all, and you will be relieved of all of your mosquito bites. I mean, how bizarre of a request would that be? How bizarre do you think this would have been for the Israelites then? So for them, it was just as inexplainable, just as puzzling. But you see, the act of turning, the act of turning and looking was ultimately then an act of simple faith, an act of mere faith. Turning to the symbol of sin and judgment in order to live required a great amount of faith in God, faith in God's mercy and his desire for their good. With just a little faith, by turning and looking to the bronze serpent, they would surely live. The people were not saved by doing anything, but by simply looking to the bronze serpent. They had to look at the raised bronze serpent hung upon the pole, not to their wounds, not to the dying that was going on all around them and not to their leader Moses, but rather at the raised bronze serpent. They had to trust and have faith that something as seemingly foolish as looking at a serpent on a pole was enough to save them. The bronze serpent you see suggests that for those bitten by the serpent in the wilderness, the way to the promised land, the way into the promised land was one of great faith and recommitment to God's difficult, but healing ways. And so when the grumbling Israelites look to the bronze serpent in faith, held high on a pole, they were saved from the punishment that they so deserved. Mercifully, God uses the emblem of his judgment to draw his people back to himself. And that's great news. That is good news for them. But though the Israelites looked to the bronze serpent to live and were cured, this was only but a temporary cure for their sins. It wasn't enough to completely cure the deep rooted issues of their hearts. The problem of sin still remained. And so the Israelites needed a more perfect cure, a more perfect antidote that would cure them once and for all. And for us, we know of something, of someone who is far greater than that bronze serpent that Moses held on the pole. For we know of the ultimate cure, to the venomous bite of sin. In the book of John, Jesus himself makes the explicit connection between himself and the bronze serpent. In John 3, 14 and 15, we read, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent, Jesus too was lifted up. He was lifted up and hung upon a cross. Just as God promised salvation to those who looked at the bronze serpent hung on the pole, Jesus promises eternal life, an an antidote for the poison of sin to those who in faith look to him. Jesus went to the cross and suffered the poison of sin, the poison of the snake bite. He suffered the full wrath of judgment that you deserve he who knew no sin became sin for our sake and gave himself up for destruction in order to wipe out all sin and all of its consequences and just as the cure for the bite of the fiery serpent was the serpent itself the cure for human life is one man's life the cure for death then is death And the only way to receive this cure, the only way to receive this antidote is to look and believe. It's as simple as that. Faith, look to the Savior. Look to your Savior hanging on the tree. And you see, there's nothing you can do to add or subtract from what Christ did for you. The Israelites didn't find their healing in themselves. They didn't, their healing didn't come from something within them, but rather they had to look up and they had to look away. They had to look away from themselves and to the salvation that God himself had graciously provided for them. But when you truly reflect on the way that you live life, is it not much easier to look at other things? Is it not easier to look to yourself? Maybe to your spouse, maybe to your children. Is it not easy, is it not easier to look at those things than to look at Jesus? So often, doesn't it feel like you need to work harder or you need to serve the church more or you need to give more offering in order to be saved of your sin? You see, we still want the control in our hands. You want to control the outcome instead of simply believing and looking in faith. And so looking at Jesus goes against all of our modern sensibilities. Looking at Jesus goes against everything that the world has told us. But in the same way that the Israelites turned away from themselves, brothers and sisters, do not look to your own works. Do not look to your own righteousness to be saved, but in faith, look to the Savior. Look to the Lamb of God who was slain for you. Look to Jesus, lifted up and dying for your sin. Look to him and see the depth of your fall and the fate that you so deserve. But look to him and see The magnitude of his mercy. See the enormity of his grace. Look to Jesus and see the victory of God that is accomplished for you through the healing of humanity's poisoned nature in the person of Jesus Christ. Do you feel like you're in a battle against the same sin? Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's constant fighting with your spouse, with your parents, with your children. Maybe it's anger, or maybe it's jealousy, or maybe it's even resenting the brother or sister that's sitting right next to you. And you may think that the solution, the solution is within yourself and that maybe you can do better or you can work it out. Maybe you're thinking if I just try a little bit harder I can fight against these things on my own. But Jesus gives us a better and more perfect cure. Look to him in faith, believe, and be saved. For we have all been affected by the poison of sin. But in faith, we can look to Jesus. We can look to Christ, who is the ultimate antidote. Just as the ancient Israelite looked in faith to a snake on a pole for healing from poisonous venom from a snake, we look to the Savior on the cross to heal us from the poison of sin. Just as the ancient Israelite was required to look in mere faith at the bronze serpent to be saved from death, so too must you now look in faith at the crucified and risen Christ, to receive the healing of new birth and to receive the gift of eternal life. So friends, in faith, look to Jesus. Be cleansed of your sins and live. There's nothing more that you need to do, but in mere faith, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and live.